us. Both hanging on the walls and seated at the tables was the look of the period. Heaps and heaps of flowers everywhere. I was greeted, if a full military dress inspection can be called a greeting, by a searingly stunning young girl who had almost as many inches on me as I had years on her. This is my way of saying that I was a jaded twenty-six when all this took place, and if you picture me at all, you might picture me five-five in height and fairly trim from a steady diet of tab, menthol Virginia slims, and encroaching deadlines for slick publications. I apparently was also fairly cute, or so lots of married men had taken the time to tell me. I gave the hostess my name, and she went searching for it in her reservation book. Almost certainly, the only book she had ever read through to the very end. O'Connor, O'Connor, she murmured, pleased to have learned a new word. I'm meeting with Mr. Collins. I added, the gossamer girl, not just her hair, even her exposed navel was somehow gossamer, nodded in recognition and said, "Oh yes, he's just finishing his first lunch." She indicated the restaurant's small bar. If you'll take a seat, Miss O'Connor. The use of Miss was still quite new at the time, and she buzzed charmingly on the letter S. I'll let you know when he's ready. So it seemed I was taking a seat at the bar, which was tended by another fair Ophelia, who was just as uselessly lovely as the hostess. She stood on endless legs, capped by a blank, beauteous face with the big, empty eyes of a murder victim. Ophie, as I'd now named her, asked me, with the delivery of an actress trying to give importance to a perfunctory part, what I'd like to drink. Dry vermouth on the rocks. Twist. Noyer prête if you have it. I pronounced perfectly. This was my good behavior drink. Vermouth on the rocks at lunch was the seventies equivalent of mineral water. We all drank at lunch in the seventies. How any competent work was done after three in the afternoon during that decade is, for me, as mysterious a question as the one I had for Mr. Collins, upon whose pleasure I was waiting. There was a brass-framed mirror behind the bar. Hung on the bottle green velvet wall between an ornamental brass coal scuttle and an ornamental brass foot bath, in the mirror I could see the back of Vince Collins's head. He was seated with a female who was dressed in a women's business outfit of the time: pinstriped jacket, vest, extremely tight skirt riding high on her thighs. I couldn't see Vince's face, but the females alternated between an earnest. Does what I'm saying make any sense? Expression, and an occasional giddy laugh, apparently more at something he had said than at something she had said. I couldn't hear his voice as more than a low, burry murmur. My vermouth was set before me by the oaf. I had the thought that when Vince finally allowed me to sit at the grown-ups table, I would not want to be making my business pitch while contending with food that required advanced cutlery skills. I had once tried to promote a series of essays on high infidelity to an editor at Viva magazine, while simultaneously attempting to disassemble the near covey of quails that littered my plate. Never again. We were now in the seventies, well into the age of egg-based skillet cuisine, and I wondered if a ratatouille crepe or Gruyere omelet was on the bill of fare. I certainly wasn't going to order anything that couldn't be cut with the side of my fork.
Might I see a menu? I asked of the oaf. Oh, don't worry. They'll be giving you one when you sit down at your table. She reassured me in her most affable Braniff Airlines stewardess manner and moved to the other end of the bar. In the mirror, Vince's table companion laughed again, displaying several sets of teeth. Vince laughed as well, low and lovely, as one might expect from a pop recording artist who'd been heavily influenced by Crosby and Como. In a magnificent manifestation of the totally disproportionate reaction, I was now beginning to feel rejected, yes, hurt, jilted by this man who had never met me. My ears were toasting with embarrassment and jealousy. His pinstriped lady friend in the mirror had become the embodiment of girls I'd loathed in high school, hurtful girls whose names I'd long ago forgotten. Janet Maitland, Anne Rakowski, Lisa Robb, Sarah Connolly, and Barbara Tozer. The goblet of vermouth before me was the humiliating punch bowl of the Sadie Hawkins dance where Kevin McMahon had arrived with me but danced the evening thereafter with another. And Vince, Mr. Collins is ready for you to join him at his new table, said my perishable hostess. I got down from my seat at the bar feeling, yes, a bit absurd about my wounded heart. My left eye saw Vince's dining companion departing the restaurant. She had stopped to laugh with a table of men. One slid his hand onto her pinstriped rear end. She laughed at this as if her left buttock were the Algonquin round table and his flattened palm George S. Kaufman. The hostess led me like a sedated calf to a spanking brand new table where Vince was waiting upon my arrival. The restaurant's lead busboy rushed around Vince, transferring his half-finished bourbon on the rocks and chaser from his prior table to our new table, wiping the glasses clean of condensation as he set them down. Sorry to keep you waiting, said Vince in an absurdly familiar baritone. People think to themselves all sorts of things that would be embarrassing or humiliating if heard aloud, and thank God they rarely voice them. As a writer, however, I've always felt it's precisely my job to voice exactly such things and for you to enjoy hearing them and for me simply not to mind my embarrassment and humiliation, as a diabetic doesn't mind a hypodermic injection, as a boxer doesn't mind a sharp blow to the head. This is nothing more than the shaman-like obligation clearly stated in the job description when I first applied to the famous writer's school for famous writing. So I will voice that in the moment when I first met Vince Collins, my rush of thoughts ran, My God, he is truly gorgeous. Gorgeous not being a word I can recall ever using previously. He's a little shorter than I thought he'd be. That cashmere turtleneck and camel's hair jacket must have cost a fortune. And I wonder if he's circumcised. Please understand, I was not thinking this last thought because there was anything visibly bulging in the vicinity of his crotch. I just had this premonition that I would have a definitive answer before I was done with him, or he with me. It was, however, a very nicely trousered crotch. Not at all, I said, which was a bit of a mismatch to his, sorry to keep you waiting. I sat but as I attempted to segue into the clever opening I'd formulated over the course of several days and practiced to a state of careless perfection, 
gossamer girl intruded herself, bearing my half-finished vermouth from the bar. As she set the goblet down before me, its oversized straw fell out of the glass and onto the carpet. Oh, your straw, she said, as if I were the one who'd dropped it. Reflexively, I reached to pick it up, but she corrected me. Don't do that, she said. We have more. She gave a look at the busboy, pointing at the straw so that he and everyone else in the restaurant would see it. I looked back at Vince. My lemon wedge was sitting stupidly in the middle of my glass before me, and I was sitting stupidly in the middle of my chair behind me. There we all were, my chair, my lemon, my straw, myself. I've never been here before, I said unfathomably. Have you had something to eat? he asked. Oh, sure. While cooling my heels at the bar, I consumed a bowl of lobster bisque, Chateaubriand for two, potatoes lyonnaise, petit pois with pearl onions, scarfed up a half-carafe of palate claret, and concluded with a large dairy queen dipped in rainbow sprinkles. You made a lunch appointment with me? I've been seated at your table all of forty seconds, and you want to know if I've eaten? Of course I haven't eaten. Of course I didn't say this. I opted instead for a chipper. No, but actually I had a late breakfast. I'm not really very hungry. A waiter appeared. Vince looked at him and said, Nope. The waiter understood and turned to me. Vince counseled, If you're hungry, the soft-shell crabs here are out of this world. Soft-shell crabs it is, I intoned smoothly with a small-mouthed smile, handing the waiter my menu while suppressing a tidal wave of absolute panic.